0: G'day and welcome to Grad Chat, your opportunity to find out about graduate research here at Queen's. My name is CJ the DJ and I'm your host for this week's Grad Chat. Of course, a show like this could not happen without the support of the School of Graduate Studies and CFRC. So thank you very much to both of them. Now, as I say every week, if you missed one of the shows, we are downloading them on on podcast on either iTunes or SoundCloud. And of course, now CFRC also have their podcast listing as well. Today, I would like to introduce you to Bailey Garrett who is doing a doctoral degree in political studies under the supervision of doctors Elizabeth Goodyear, Grant and Margaret Little. Welcome to Grad Chat, Bailey. Thanks for having me. Now, you have a really important question or research topic and question, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> and, and it is, who's responsible? Explaining how contemporary Canadian newspapers frame domestic violence. So before we get into the big questions there, can you give me a brief overview of what your research is and why you wanted to do this topic in the first place. Great, thanks
1: for that introduction. So I specifically look at the way contemporary newspapers in Canada cover issues of domestic violence and domestic violence by that I mean violence between intimate partners and that can include sexual, emotional, physical, financial, etc. So it's the full range of violence and I'm looking at the way newspapers cover those issues and going beyond that particular analysis I'm also looking at how that news is produced. So so, and I think this topic is important for two reasons I mean there's many reasons but mm-hmm. two sort of come to mind one we're in a moment where we don't really know necessarily what newspapers are talking about in terms of gender-based violence although we know that it's being talked about a lot so okay. sort of trying to understand what those patterns look like across newspapers and two we also don't really know how that news is being produced there's a lot of discussion around newspapers failing a lot of discussion around do they even cover news anymore and so they do still cover news and so looking at what that actually looks like and those production processes in this contemporary moment of technological shifting, economic shifting, news. these legacy news medias that
0: still inform our news, even though a lot of people read it online. I hate reading newspapers online. I find it really annoying. I like the old hard print. (laughs) I do too. I was on the train today and I got to read the Globe and Mail hard print, although it's been redesigned to be smaller, which I think is... Which makes a lot of sense when you're on public transport, (laughs) because that used to be annoying. People used to open up the newspaper and they'd block you. (laughs) Or they were so small, they couldn't really read it. So I'm still for a hard copy. It was interesting you said newspapers. Because there is a lot of the digital stuff now. And then and in the news, of course, there's radio and TV. So there's lots of those other technologies. When you're saying newspapers, are you looking at the big newspapers or are you looking at the regional papers as well? So I looked at all daily newspapers in Canada, which is a lot.
1: And that, would be, that includes the legacy, long-standing newspapers who seem to be going really strong. So the Globe and Mail, the Toronto Star, the National Post. Right. I also looked at the local ones. So in Kingston, the Whig Standard. Right. I did. I excluded regional papers that printed weekly or under weekly just to sort of narrow the sample and I also excluded papers that I couldn't get access to mm-hmm, which makes sense just by virtue of feasibility and comparing across time and space is really hard when you don't have access to things although I did try to ensure I had regional representation I used various databases to access na- newspapers from the Maritimes I also physically went to Thunder Bay to oh, collect right. the newspaper copies from the Chronicle Journal, which is really important. It's it's a newspaper that's owned by a different company, and so I wanted to make sure I had that diversity. But also Thunder Bay is an interesting place to look at news. I bet it would be. I've never been to Thunder Bay, so you recommend it? I really like Sleeping Giant. I mean, the town is... It's a very beautiful place. I think it's an important place in Canada right now in thinking about Indigenous relations, leasing, governance, how this is operating. And so I had a glimpse of that when I was in Thunder Bay. And I think it's a space that news still needs to come out of but also we need to have an understanding of what's happening up in there. these smaller places right. that are outside of the GTA and someone I'm from Alberta and so I grew up on sort of the discourses of everything in Ontario is awful and those sort of, sort of the same things happen in northern
0: right. Ontario when right. they feel
1: neglected by virtue of uh, the southern uh, media who and people told me this time and time again when I did interviews in Thunder Bay that they got really frustrated that southern media would come up do a quick story do it poorly because Mm. they just came up for the quick amount of time like half an hour i'm gonna get back on the plane yeah exactly and it's expensive you understand Mm -hmm. why it's hard for these news medias to cover this so that was a really i think an important place to go to but i did physically go through the reels in the library we had it was a long it was a long week was it like
0: a microfiche yeah microfiche Wow. wow okay that brings you back, doesn't it? Yeah, it was yeah. It was fun for the time. For the time. I don't want to do it for again. The time. <laughs> now, it's interesting. You, you, you talked about with the newspapers to make sure you're not just covering the big conglomerates. How many sort of different organizations did you look at from the Big East to the ones that aren't even the regional ones that aren't connected to the big groups? So in Canada, we don't
1: really have independent papers left. The only one that you could maybe code as independent is the Fort Francis Times. Otherwise, everything is sort of pu- from a different type of conglomerate. So okay. uh, in the Maritimes, there's uh, a new owner, which uh, is a larger conglomeration now. Post Media, we know, owns a lot of newspapers and we okay. see this sort of replicating patterns across Canada. But there's also smaller ones, Black Times, or the Black Press Times, well, I'm messing up the uh, particular order, that owns part of it, but that's also related to another organization, Continental Newspapers, which owns the Chronicle Journal. All of that to say that local news is not owned
0: typically locally in the same Way that we would imagine it would to be well. That's that then, like you, like you said, up like even up in Thunder Bay, you're not getting the full story, the real story, are you? Because if if you just mentioned a lot of the times, we're repeating the information because it's just going from one. Paper to another because it's just on that big wire everyone can pick up whatever it's not actually doing like you said what's local
1: yeah so I have, find two patterns in that regards so I find that there is a lot of wire content and one journalist said to me out of Ottawa he sort of lamented the fact that they no longer can rely on the in-house journalists to even cover local news. And they were sort right. of very saddened by that fact that right. they were picking up wire content to cover what is local. And that sort of speaks to the economic challenges that a lot of these newspapers are facing. But then for the local news, it's still a pride for a lot of places. But what you see then is they rely on a lot of actors within those spaces that have a lot of power. So in the realm of domestic violence, right. that's the police. Okay. So in a lot of local newspapers, and I saw this time and time again they would just reprint police press releases as news Oh,
0: okay, okay. So they don't like even have columnists in these local papers that can have a, a thought, an opinion. I would say they so they do ish, but they
1: don't do it that often, right? And in part, you can see why. Like, there's less journalists trying to fill the same paper. So yeah. what are you relying on? You're relying on wire content, which is produced by another organization. Right. You're relying on in-house, as in like Post Media does a lot of the formatting for the different papers themselves. So that's that's oh. outsourced. Okay, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's outsourced right. for a lot of local newspapers, which is why sometimes you'll see, and I have to laugh when I see it in the Wig standard, for example, you might have a double page because the local editors at the Wig might do a full page that they like, right. but then the national organization that does it sort of conglomerately might also like that page. And so I've seen oh, double pages a few right?
0: times. Wow.
1: Which wow. is, yeah, it's, I mean, <laughs> they, they're also saddened by this. This isn't, right. they know about this. This yes. is not a surprise. <laughs> I'm not telling secrets. So you have, In Kingston, for example, you do have a crime reporter who will go out and cover their own stories, but they also are trying to cover as much as they can the police beat, and that rather than sort of uncovering the stories in the way that we would imagine they uncover stories, they often rely on official communications, and so we're not getting the sort of deep dives in the way that you might expect. The exception, of course, is when larger newspapers like the Globe and Mail or the Toronto Star does an investigative piece, we see often, and my research sort of bore this out, local journalists will pick up on that. So the unfounded series with the Globe that generated a lot of local news right. because that big heavy lifting of the investigative reporting was done by the the Globe and Mail and so local journalists were able then to pick up those pieces right and cover that which was I think really exciting to see that but they also couldn't have done it without that they don't have the time they don't have the energy they don't have necessarily the
0: contacts either right so apart from your research topic there's a whole part of journalism that's sort of dying which is quite sad
1: yeah it I I lament it in some ways but I also am cautious to sort of talk about how new it is. Mm -hmm. Uh, Natalie Fenton, who's a a journalism researcher, wrote back in 2011 that she articulated this current state of journalism as administrative cut and paste journalism, which is damning, an awful way to talk about it. But I think quite apt in some cases where you see press releases, PR, taking a lot of space within the news. And so what we read as news are maybe not news in the sense that we imagine it, where you have a journalist sort of filtering through, but rather their role is just whether or not that press release makes the news, not necessarily the content of it. One journalist told me when I asked about police press releases, they said, one thing I really like about this particular police press, uh, press writer is they write it like a newspaper story. So I don't uh, have to actually rewrite it that much. I can just pick it up and drop it in.
0: Wow. Okay. So you talked a little bit about this and what what you've just said already. So from your research, what are the dominant patterns and how newspapers in Canada covered domestic violence from uh, are you only looking from the period 2014-2016? Yeah, I had to narrow it. Yeah. <laughs> very true, very true. But you would never finish.
1: <laughs> well, especially now I think it's it's more in the news and I, I always think, Oh, should I add another year? Should I mm-hmm. I no you no. need to You need to stop. You need to stop, yes. you need to like cut it off
0: and realize that it's a limitation. Yes. But also realize you can't study something forever. You have to graduate. Well the good thing is that period has finished, so mm-hmm. it's finite. Is that the right right word?
1: Yeah, so I, and I, I collected that data, sort of, some of it live, so that was really interesting too, and I did interviews live during some of that time period, so this doesn't really answer the question, but just sort of, I think, an interesting side note. I did influence the news. Excellent. Uh, and not in a way that I anticipated, oh, but okay. <laughs> by doing an interview with one journalist, they then, within the next months, covered a story after sort of talking to me about the way that they wanted to cover it, which is not, was not, a, not my goal, not, no. in, so that sort of is an interesting note in that sort of That's time good period. good Okay. I, yeah, if journalists are very receptive, I think to learning right. some of them. Some. So the dominant patterns I find are fourfold, I guess I would say. So the largest pattern is that over three quarters, like nearly eighty percent, of the news individualized domestic violence. And so what I mean by that is it focuses on domestic violence as a one-off or episodic event, which is very consistent with previous research, which suggests right. that the news is more likely to cover a news event as a singular thing. Right. I identify this, though, in a in this sort of moment in which we are talking about responsibility that's maybe not collective, but rather individual. So I think it's more than just a habit of news to sort of think about an isolated event, but rather something along the lines of how we actually view responsibility responsibility. responsibility for these issues. right, And the reason why I think that's important, and it really came out for me, is that some of the other patterns contravened that in a way. So there was two patterns that were much less prevalent, but very notable. So both of them were under 50% of stories. So yes, there's overlap. So those patterns were uh, thematic framing and racialization. So thematic framing is when news story covers domestic violence as though it's part of a broader picture, so that might be connecting an individual survivor's story to histories of you know how domestic violence is treated in Canada in general or it might be saying this is a part of gendered violence but I'm going to give you this one story where it might just be talking about it in a broad context so that gives a different sort of understanding of what responsibility is so who's responsible for the violence and who's responsible to address it when you put it in this broader context and then racialization is is very fuzzy to sort of identify in a lot of ways but what racialization is is noting the the racial markers of the of the participants involved or of the violence itself and what I find is that often these stories responsibleize communities for the violence, but it's not white folks. It's not no, the broader Canadian society. It's indigenous communities. Right. It's you know predominantly uh, countries with predominantly black people. That's what you're looking at, and you're not looking at right. these individual stories. And so it's this difference of responsibility that I find
0: really interesting. It's almost in the like news. it could, couldn't happen in white society.
1: Yeah, and I and you know I have journalists who say to me like, oh no no wasp Canadians can commit violence too, but yet the way they come it, it sort of portrays that when a white person engages in violence it's this aberration that is just their own individual deficiency or at times a survivor's fault so the right. sort of victim blaming that sometimes happens although right. that's much less than what has been previously found in other research whereas when you look at like when the other news sort of talks about in racialized communities it's more of like this community deficiency that somehow there's something
0: inherently more violent right the, the best example is discussions around honor killing well, I mean we had that in Kingston right because that that law um the courts were here for that honor killing yeah so the Shafia case is before this time period but one that I think clearly demonstrates
1: how this operates in which honor killing then becomes this symptom of a broader cultural issue but what's at stake is that the culture is not a Canadian culture the culture is not white culture the culture is Muslims or Southeast Asians or something somewhat external right and it's really I one uh, anti-violence advocate said to me if I could do anything to change the news I would tell them to stop culturalizing violence and that was her term
0: is that right that's great you're like that's correct I think that's a great we're all you tell them. We're all <laughs> capable, all human beings. Across the board, exactly. So it brings this interesting thing, because we're in this era, era, and I know it's not the era that you were looking at, but this past year, of course, the the Me Too thing that's been going on recently. So what does your research tell us about the role newspapers might play in bringing issues about gendered violence to the forefront, particularly with this Me Too?
1: Yeah, so the Me Too movement, I would be remiss not to think about it, given its prominence. So one, the Me Too movement can be covered by the news, but what I think it's actually doing is challenging the news to think about how these stories of survivors experiences are actually newsworthy. Right, so, right. for example, and this might sound sort of different from what I was saying before. I'm happy to sort of reconcile that tension, but a lot of journalists said to me, you know, individual incidents of domestic violence that are boring, usual domestic violence, the everyday domestic violence is not newsworthy. Okay. It's not unusual, it didn't involve murder, there was no fun weapon. It's not newsworthy, and I think what the Me Too movement is challenging and saying, actually, no, there's a pattern here yeah. that you're not calling out that other people then are calling out. Right. And in
0: terms, so of- as a collective, then yeah. it was newsworthy, but not as an individual.
1: Yeah. So, and I and I think that's what the Me Too movement is challenging is that these mm-hmm. individual stories really matter and actually highlight these patterns. And in terms of individualization, because that might sound sort of different than what I'm talking about, I think what the Me Too movement sort of does is it goes, these individual stories matter, but they matter because they're part of this broader conversation. And that's not what individualization does within news patterns. Right, right.
0: See, this is why you're doing the PhD. <laughs> <laughs> you got you got the answers. It's fantastic. So the news media is often called the fourth estate, which I need to ask you what that is, a necessary watchdog in, in, in our society. So what does your research tell us about the role newspapers are playing in this contemporary moment in which we see legacy newspapers shut down and other newspapers lay off reams of staff? I mean, we kind of alluded a little bit to that earlier. Are they acting as watchdogs or can they act as watchdogs? or can they act act as watchdogs?
1: Yeah, so the for the state is a term that is often used to sort of refer to the media as, in its idealized form, as sort of as another check on power. Okay. So it's making sure that politicians are held to account, institutions are held to account. And I think this ideal role is one that I would still love to see among newspapers. However, what I'm sort of finding with the way in which news is sort of producing issues around domestic violence is that rather than holding institutions accountable... They're focused on holding individuals accountable. Okay. And it. they're also likely to sort of go along with institutional understandings in part because they don't seem to have the resources to challenge institutions. And the, I think the biggest example is the way in which police influence domestic violence news. And again, aside from sort of these exceptional cases at the Globe and Mail and the Toronto Star, although I think those cases you can still sort of talk about the way in which police are a very trusted source and not Odd. sort of challenged mm-hmm. in their sort of discursive authority. I'm like what my research shows is in local spaces police are often really heavily involved in this news production process and so it's hard to then challenge them challenge them right. about you know why aren't you covering this so Kingston is quite unique Kingston police unlike most police forces in Canada release information about domestic violence regularly is that right most of the police forces in Canada don't release information about domestic violence did you interview the Kingston police yeah and what did why did why are they doing it and not the others so the person who started it uh, is no longer the communications director, but this legacy sort of still continues. And his reasoning was that it's important for the public to know how pervasive this is. Right. It's a large part of their job. For most police forces, domestic violence makes up a, like a large portion of the calls they actually attend. But okay. yet, yeah, that's not what we're hearing about. We're hearing about the robbery. You're hearing about some other sort of public safety risk, right. not this so-called private risk that a lot of people
0: are in behind closed doors.
1: Yeah, and I police officers have said that to me that you know, we don't need to talk about it because it's a private issue. And I was shocked when they said yeah. that, but they did say that. I mean, it was in 2016, maybe they've learned two years later. I don't know. I haven't done follow-up interviews with this particular individual. But the Kingston police are quite unique in that regards. And so what you see in Kingston is that there's a lot more like police-reported domestic violence coming up that's regular, like a regular, we attended this domestic violence, we attended this domestic violence case. And often those aren't murders, they don't involve weird weapons, the sort of what I was talking about yeah, earlier, the... Yeah newsworthiness whereas most other places the police don't release information about domestic violence and so you don't see the whole scope of it but rather than challenging journalists on that I saw a lot of journalists in my interviews would sort of internalize that they're like oh no no like we don't need to cover that it's not as newsworthy or there's bigger things to cover or you know it's a more private issue and so there's a way in which police are not being challenged
0: in their communication policies right but also their handling of these cases because you're not covering it. So it's almost like we need some champions in the various corporations, newspaper corporations to make that their, that's their goal. To work on those sorts of things so so what does your research tell us about how newspapers coverage issues related to violence against indigenous women and girls i mean you've alluded to this earlier with some of the communities where often it is the indigenous community that they do put in the news mm-hmm. so it's all for the negative reasons and things so, so what do you think there so interestingly
1: so i guess a caveat first my research didn't look at murdered to missing indigenous women as a broad issue because i just sort of did a slice of gender-based violence which was domestic violence right so it doesn't include everything but i think by doing this slice was really interesting because what i found that it was very rare i think i had one story of my nearly 900 stories that covered an individual case of an indigenous woman in a in a domestic violence situation one that identified it one but yet there was there was additional stories that talked about this as a broad issue for the community right and so what i sort of saw from this is that Individual experiences of violence, often at the hand of Indigenous men or white men, were not necessarily newsworthy. But what was newsworthy was identifying that the community was somehow the violent. Community. Right. which I think was really interesting and, imp- and I think there's a lot of reasons for this that go beyond the easy I, I, racism thing I think there is an issue of access I think that journalists may not be going into the community so they don't know about these things so there are those sort of issues as well but right. at the same time I think there's clearly something there where journalists are not seeing this as newsworthy as a murder of a white woman somewhere else or identifying it in that way the one story that was in, the, in my sample was interesting too because because it was actually a journalist one person mission to try to recover this story and sort of say why wasn't it covered right right. because it was a murder so we're not even talking about that everyday domestic violence that some places don't cover anyways we're talking about a murder and so this journalist was trying to recover this story and was working quite hard to sort of go why wasn't this covered why aren't we talking about this and that was a very unusual thing that didn't happen yeah to me that was very interesting and i think very important to sort of identify and also identify that the other stories that identified the broader issue of gender-based violence in the community specifically around domestic violence often had a lot of police support and interest in the story so i think there's a relationship there too where we're seeing police advancing these notions of violent indigenous communities right
0: so that was even back in 2014 2016 so it's Mm -hmm. not not now yeah i don't i don't know what they're doing now but back then back then that's what they were doing and
1: i i also should say it wasn't you know every story wasn't about indigenous women there was a lot of other stories but it was a very broad it was a it was a strong theme and one that i think i couldn't discount but i also don't want to say that they're you know not doing something different now
0: so there's two questions i definitely want to get into (laughs) before before our time because we know how time goes really quickly so There's been discussions in the media and federally about providing funding to some media organisations and some news-gathering activities. And the current federal fund does not specifically provide funding funding to legacy media. Now, some applaud the move because they argue that government funding would compromise news organizations. What does your research tell us about this particular debate? So, yeah, because you you can, you can see <laughs> it could be an issue. <laughs> yeah, and you would you would sort of think that you don't want to
1: necessarily receive funds from someone you're you want to be held accountable. Now, I didn't study CBC, so I think that would be an interesting I counterpoint. I that, that's the
0: one I was going to bring up because they're meant to be very, very neutral. Yeah. And they are government funded.
1: And I... From a very, I think, I read too much news for, as an avid newsreader, which I think you would hope one does if you're doing yes. this topic. <laughs> the CBC does often do a better job, which I think is sort of contraven- contravenes that. But my that's sort of outside the scope of my research. That's right. sort of my own mm-hmm. thoughts on it. But what I think my research does tell me anyways is that the drive for profit is actually compromising news. Okay, So it is where their funding is coming from. But to sort of say this purely profit-driven model or a purely audience subscription-based model is somehow more neutral, I think misses the ways in which it is also compromising. It may not be the ways in which we would imagine it to be Mm -hmm. compromising, but when you start to be driven by ad sales, you start to be driven by profit things, you start to see which news matters. So news matters is the news that people read. Yeah. And then, so that means you're producing stuff that maybe isn't in the public interest. Right, right. Rather, it's maybe in the interest of the reader. And those are not necessarily the stories you need to see. Does CBC always do a good job? No, CBC has a lot of issues. But I think it's a counterpoint to say that maybe what's actually
0: compromising in some ways is the way newspapers are set up economically. <laughs> Does it need to be on a sidebar? Does it need to be something more like they do with TV and radio? There has to be, say, in this instance, a um, certain amount of Canadian content. Should it be that there should be some sort of policy in place where in newspapers there has to be a certain amount of content from the region?
1: That could be really interesting. I think there's space for this particular fund to fund local news, which part of it I I believe is earmarked to sort of do creative and local uh, stuff, but it's not going to legacy media necessarily although I'm not sure if they've sort of finangled it because they were hoping to tap into this fund. I think there is a space to sort of think about what local journalism might actually look like. Right. And how to appropriately fund that and I guess what my research sort of suggests is that it's not necessarily that government funding is going to compromise it. I think the current state is quite compromised in which you see them having to go to actual government institutions rather than holding them accountable to
0: actually just fill this paper to make it Right, news. right. I mean your topics about um, domestic violence, mm. right. So do you think if this, because it is prevalent unfortunately, it is out there all over the place, mm. do you think if it was reported more in the papers it would just get so blasé that people wouldn't pay any attention at all to any of it. What do you think? I really like the idea of audience
1: studies, and it's something that I would be interested to move towards. Um, There's two pieces of research that are not my own, but things that I sort of draw on. So one, the Kingston police claim that by releasing more information about domestic violence has actually increased the amount of calls about domestic violence.
0: Okay, that's good. Because we already
1: know it's very underreported. It's good that it's being called, but bad that it's still happening more. (laughs) I think... What we know is that mm-hmm. the rates are are much higher than what we know about. Right, right. And so there is a question about how do we sort of have more interventions and sort of acknowledge the ways in which right. people need to sort of live in, in different ways and actually get the support they need. But then also to some research by a researcher out of University of Virginia Commonwealth or something like that. And she looked at the ways in which different framing of, of news actually promotes empathy for people. Okay. And so, what I what I think is maybe not the amount that matters so much, but rather how it's framed. Because what okay. this particular mm-hmm. study suggested is that, and it's it's common sense, but it's you know it's worth noting in research that if a story victim blames or engages in victim blaming behavior, that the reader is less likely to. Have an empathetic response to the victim, right. and then also less likely to report wanting to engage in pro-social behavior. So by that they meant engaging in like supporting your local charity or giving money, to, yeah, giving money to your right. local charity or saying you would help a survivor if you if they told you, etc. So that suggests that the framing really matters. So it might not be the amount, but how it's talked about. And for me, this individualization in which individual responsibility doesn't actually get at the responses
0: we might want to get at. I don't have research to suggest this. Right. Next. Next, topic, Next maybe. Next topic. So could we not do, here is the domestic violence, and this is how what we can all do to help reduce it. I, yes, I, there's always need for more programming. I also think newspapers have a place to play mm-hmm. in this. If
1: they focus on their stories as a space of not just reporting these episodic stories just to fill a newspaper, but actually seeing their roles as one in which you're trying to build empathy, right. I think that could go a long, a long way. Line. And there are reporters who do that, and I, I really appreciated their analysis of this. And one actually, the... Sex and sexuality reporter at the Globe and Mail talked about how right now we're actually in this phase of education, where people need to be educated about the prevalence of domestic violence, but in a way that builds empathy, rather than in a way that just sort of notes the the way, like, how much is happening. Because I think we risk drawing on, you know, our implicit biases, etc., when, say, you're noting the amount in indigenous communities. And if you already don't care about indigenous communities, which unfortunately some people don't, that that's not going to help to sort of build that empathy. Right
0: right good point great i think whatever you come up with in your final thesis is going to be awesome thank you again thank you so much for having me i really appreciate it no problem at all so uh, perhaps we should because it's a very very important topic that bailey is doing but uh, as usual that's another week of grad chat coming to an end until next week this is cj the dj signing off with a big hooray